Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone is getting back to work after a relaxing weekend. Let's get right into the headlines impacting New Mexicans. State lawmakers say they're considering addressing alcohol in the upcoming session. In an update to their series Blind Drunk, New Mexico In-Depth is reporting several influential state lawmakers are open to the idea of raising taxes on alcohol. State Senator George Munoz of Gallup is chair of the Senate Finance Committee. He told independent journalist Ted Alcorn that he supports raising statewide alcohol taxes. Senate President Pro Tem Mimi Stewart of Albuquerque agreed, saying the state's rates are, quote, probably not at the level they need to be, end quote. Last month, we spoke to Mr. Alcorn, State Representative Joanne Ferrari, and two doctors about our state's nation-leading alcohol-related death rate. During that discussion, the group highlighted the proven effectiveness of higher alcohol taxes. You can watch that entire discussion online right now on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube page or listen back on the August 22nd episode of the podcast. The state health department says it's going to get the new Omicron COVID-19 booster to seniors and people living in assisted living homes within the next six weeks. The rollout includes plans for drive-through clinics where people can receive those shots. At this point, Department of Health Secretary Dr. David Scrace says there aren't any plans to end the COVID-19 emergency public health order. Dr. Scrace says keeping the emergency status on the books gives us access to federal benefits for many low-income residents that we wouldn't otherwise receive. In about 25 minutes here on the podcast, Gene Grant talks with the Deputy Secretary of the Department, Dr. Laura Parahone, about what people can expect with this new booster, and she also explains what parents with young children need to know about it. Republican nominee for governor Mark Ronchetti is calling for a statewide referendum on abortion. Ronchetti made that announcement during a new TV ad that aired late last week. The GOP nominee has advocated for a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with exceptions for rape, incest, and risk to the physical health of the mother. Incumbent Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham immediately responded to the referendum proposal, saying she'll oppose any attempt to undo New Mexico's progress in protecting abortion rights. Right now, New Mexico state law ensures access to abortion with few restrictions. That's even after the U.S. Supreme Court rolled back guaranteed access when it overturned Roe v. Wade in June. A new food drive is aiming to help people impacted by the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire in northern New Mexico. The State Department of Game and Fish is hoping to source meat from hunters and ranchers to replace what was lost during the fire. The food will then be distributed to those who need it. The food drive comes as the federal government extended the registration period for individual assistance through FEMA through October 7th. That funding was meant for New Mexicans affected by burn scar flooding and debris flows that followed the historic wildfire. The Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire burned a record-setting area of more than 500 square miles after being started by Forest Service prescribed burn action. The U.S. Forest Service says it's changing its prescribed burn protocols to prevent a situation like the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire from ever happening again. I let you know about that announcement last week on the podcast, but this week we're getting reaction to those changes from our line opinion panel. Joining Gene are Dave Mulryan, president of Mulryan Nash Advertising, Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher at the Santa Fe Reporter, and Ed Perea, attorney and public safety analyst. The U.S. Forest Service says its ban on prescribed burns is over after three months. The program was put on hold in late May after the devastating Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon wildfire, which started with the action from the federal government. The Forest Service says there are new protocols in place to make sure there aren't any more disasters like that historic fire. We'll get into some of the specific procedural changes in a moment, but from what you all have read about the end of this ban, Julianne, I'll start with you. Is this the right time as the weather starts to change a little bit? I think the Forest Service took um, a relatively short amount of time between pausing prescribed burns because of this catastrophe mm. and resuming them. Considering how long the agency takes to make most of its decisions, that's really just a little flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to note that they're going to 
allegedly they're going to um, have some same day decision making that goes hand in hand with their planning processes. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, those who make the argument that the agency has really lost credibility uh, over time, I think that argument is very strong among people in northern New Mexico, especially, although certainly folks who live around the Gila and other, you know, Rio Doso places that have also had big fire. Um, but this fire in northern New Mexico that was caused by the Forest Service, we have to remember it wasn't just a prescribed burn that began on a windy day. Mm -hmm. It was also a slash pile that was left burning over the winter right. that flared up again. So the the complexity of how these things can get out of hand, um, I think people are right to be fairly skeptical. But at the same time, I think it would be dangerous for the Forest Service to just stop these efforts mm -hmm. to improve forest health because we, we've let it, our nation has let our, our forest get to the point where things are very, very Dangerous. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Ed, you know, the Forest Service Chief Randy Moore says the agency is not going to back away from intentional burns, as Julianne just mentioned. He says he sees them as a crucial tool in reducing the buildup of fire fuel material for forest floors and grasslands. No one would disagree with that, right? It's the how. It's not the reason to do it. It's the how to do it. That's the problem here. Are you, are you feeling that they've got, these guys have gotten on top of it at this point? Uh, let me just put that this out there. I read a, a, a statement by the fire chief Moore mm -hmm. that just jumped out at me. And he said, well, I can't guarantee that a fire isn't going to get out of control in the right. future. That concerned me, okay? Yep. I, I, these are prescribed burns. These are intentional. And I know there are a lot of things that you can't control. I would like to hear from that chief to say, we are going to do everything that we need to do so that this doesn't happen. But to already set this up as well, if it happens, and I see the the data, the, the, some of the data in the report said that 99.8% of the prescribed burns are you know happen with you know, success and no other problems. But when you look at the 500 square miles and the destruction of property and lives, mm -hmm. uh, as, as as a citizen, I want to hear we are doing everything so that this doesn't happen again. Period. Without the caveat that we're not going to guarantee because that's opening it up to human failure, and we just we just can't accept that. We can't allow that to happen again. We need to take the requisite steps, even if it's overdoing it, to ensure this doesn't happen again. And that would be, you know, my concern as as a citizen. Mm -hmm. How do we make this percent? Is there any way to do it? Well, that would be the ultimate goal without that without that caveat. Mm -hmm. You know, Dave, interestingly, uh, one of the interesting changes will account for weather anomalies that can creep up in a matter of days in New Mexico, of course. Now, under this new guidance, plans to start prescribed burns will only be effective for 24 hours, not weeks or months. That's interesting. Uh, that's the way it was before. That seems like a common sense change, doesn't it? It does. I mean, and I think that, you know, the use of that term common sense is one that I think <laughs> nice. that, you know, the federal government, especially in a state like New Mexico, California, you know, these large states all over the West, they have a lot of power and they do have, you know, are given a mission to protect force, to do what's right. And the thing is, too, and I would say, do we know really about what the criteria are for starting a burn or stopping a burn or what the how the Forest Service works? And I mean, you know, as evidenced by the 100 page report that was put out that all of us studied, you know, I mean, I studied it for days. Right. I'm being a, I'm being facetious. Of course, very few of us read it. But I think that we have to understand and we don't understand what are the roles that these that these areas that these you know departments have mm -hmm. and how can we as you know individuals influence what their decision making is like and we don't seem to know how to do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting point there um you know interestingly in the case of the burn that became the hermit's peak fire an administrator ed oh, i'm sorry julianne i want to go to you on this uh signed off on the burn on march 24th to occur between april 1st and april 30th so crews ignited on April 6th, and that's going to change to day of, certainly, but I just, in my gut, it's just like, does that really make a huge difference? I'm not a fire expert, I'm not trying to be, but something doesn't seem quite together here. How do you make that part of it out in your own mind? I mean, I, you know, when I, what I said before about the timelines, you know, that the Forest Service has, mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting to consider another little piece of this puzzle, which is something called the Santa Fe 
uh, forest mountain landscape resiliency project. I may have added an extra word in there, but this is a um, federal, state, and private land planning effort that was going to um, impose prescribed burns on um, tens of thousands of acres uh, north and east of Santa Fe. Right. And of course, this was uh, in the final review process. It's been a years long review process. We've written lots of stories about it. Um, and I think the, um, you know, I, I know that the pause in the federal prescribed burns also hit the pause button on the planning effort for that. And so um, we have this years and years of, of debate in the community and Certainly in Santa Fe, there is not agreement about prescribed burns and the value of that tool. There is a large vocal group that really feels like that is not the way to go. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, this is a tricky topic. And I don't know that the Forest Service really does have, you know, the answer. Mm hmm. You know, Ed, uh, you mentioned the governor previously, and I love the quote from her spokesperson, which we assume is what the governor feels. Quote, we hope the Forest Service understands that it will take actions, not just words, to earn back the trust of New Mexicans. That's pretty stiff stuff from a governor towards the federal government, but is she on solid ground there? Well, when you see the devastation that happened to the to, to lives of individuals who, who, who depend on government, who depend on the federal government, on the mm -hmm. Forest Service, the state government, you know, on, on, on BLM and all those people who are responsible for their lands. And, and, and when it gets out of control this way, the, the, the livelihood often is lost. There are a lot of people, uh, individuals out there who are still trying to recover and may never recover. So, you know, as the leader of our state, to make a, 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 such a strong statement, I think is appropriate. It's, we can't let this happen again. Again, yeah. these are intentional prescribed burns. This cannot happen again. Now, I, I don't know where the fire chief is from. I, I don't know if he works out of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're here in this state, when you care about what happens in the state and you want to make sure that you do everything and hold those accountable who are responsible for those decisions that, that might impact their lives. Mm -hmm. Dave, it's hard for a federal agency to sort of filter down its plans and goals and ideals down to the public. I mean, has anybody even heard <laughs> what the Forest Service had to say about this? But you know what I mean? I'm sure they understand where the governor's coming from on this. Should we, should we just all be there and just not trust these people at all at this point and just let them prove a point? Well, I mean, that would certainly be my reaction at this point, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, if the Forest Service says, yeah, we're gonna, res we're gonna reschedule and we're gonna start to schedule, you know, some burns, I would say run, you know? I mean, you know, that's what the evidence tells us. And, and, and you know, but I do think that, that one, the other question that, that is going to have to be answered is if we are facing climate change, you know, mm. it's going to affect things like prescribed burns. It's going to affect the density of forests and, you know, all sorts of things that, that, you know, a layman like me probably won't understand. It's going to affect our water. You know, what is the federal government as the planning agency or the agency in charge of these things? What are, what are they doing? What are they planning? You know, we seem to spend all of our time fighting about, you know, strange things that, that don't seem to make much sense. We are facing some very serious problems. And do we have the talent and the ability and the communication skills to sort of overcome them? You know, that's the question that I would have. That's a good point there. Hey, thanks again to our line panel, as always, this week. Now, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Good stuff this week for sure. And catch up on any episodes you might have missed on the PBS Video app on your Roku or Smart TV. Thanks to Gene and the panel. This past week on the show, the group also discussed a report from the Legislative Finance Committee that shows New Mexico is coming up short on treating behavioral health. It's a problem with many contributing factors, like our exceptionally high substance abuse rates and access to care. Gene and our panelists take it all into account as they try to understand how to better address this problem. All right, a new series from the Albuquerque Journal highlights many of the shortcomings of our behavioral health system in Berlioz County, but also the entire state. Those articles show some of the systemic failures, but also make it clear our need here in New Mexico is greater than in most states. And Dave, we rank in the bottom 10 states when it comes to the general prevalence of mental illness among residents. That's as the state, as you know, is investing $930 million this fiscal year alone to improve behavioral health outcomes. It doesn't seem like a money issue, does it? Uh, or is it, after all? 
You know, that was one of the things that was somewhat depressing when they were pointing out that, you know, in terms of funding, we do pretty good. We, we as a state, we do pretty well in how much we do fund. Mm -hmm. It's just that our outcomes are not that good. And I think one of the things, one of the other articles that we read, you know, as sort of background today was, you know, are we missing professionals in our state and local governments? And in some ways, I think that, you know, it's not just about throwing money at the problem, although money does tend to help. Mm -hmm. But I think that new ideas and try things that we haven't tried before are also helpful. And also, I mean, I just I want to defend the state somewhat and say, I think one of the problems that New Mexico has is because we're such an enormous state, it is difficult to sort of, you know, get boots on the ground where you need them and to see everything. So in some ways, geography is destiny. And I think that's a big part of our problem. It's, it is very difficult to, to, you know, administer these statewide programs when you're having to deal with places like Albuquerque and having to deal with places like Raton, you know, with 2,400 people in the state, in the, the, the city or the town. And I think that those, those types of differences mean that you're going to have to have, you know, programs that work both on a small side and when you have to supersize them too. Mm -hmm. Julianne, Dave makes an interesting point about geography. Obviously, the uh, Rio Grande Corridor seems to have most of these services. Nine, you know, we've got a lot of money out here uh, for this. Is this the time to make this situation just much more manageable for folks in rural parts of our state? Well, I think it's long past time for, you know, people in rural communities to have adequate access to health care of all kinds. Um, and certainly that is the biggest challenge area. I think it's the one that, um, as you mentioned, it is uh, the staffing shortages that are plaguing all of our medical services are particularly acute for behavioral health, you know, substance use treatment, um, even things like, you know, I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, youth services to help to mitigate some of these long-term problems people can develop if they're not addressed uh, with adequate services for youth. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot that, you know, still needs to be done. And I, I sort of sympathize with this idea that you you want to leap to the defense of New Mexico and say, look at all the money we're spending and look at all the problems we have. But that just feels thin. And when you consider the need that we have and clearly our government, you know, our communities are not doing all that we need to do to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. You know, Ed, interesting that Julianne brings up money here. One of the things the report it was just so mind blowing is just how much money we have spent so far with kind of not much result. I mean, the state tripled spending on substance abuse uh, treatment and increased services delivery by 85%, but analysts said that in the same time frame, the alcohol-related death rate, drug overdose deaths, violent crime rose 49, 43, and 30% respectively over those years. So I ask again, is it a money issue? Not enough money is being spent? How should we consider the money angle here? Well, Gene, it's not the money issue. Clearly, by all the data that we've received, there's plenty of money. The, the citizens of New Mexico and County have been taxed in order to specifically address these issues. And so there's money in this pot to start addressing the issues. Mm -hmm. the, the problem appears to be the organization and the coordination. There seems to be a lot of individuals involved in the various component parts of this process, but not one person who might be able to pull all the the actors and all the different agencies together uh you know it's been it's been written that this whole process seems to be a little bit disjointed that there's just a lot of little pieces that are that are taking place well there's doesn't appear to be a, a major concern about services if you look at the data it seems to be that there are many services available but it's the implementation and the outcomes of the of this of this treatment that is the biggest concern mm -hmm. and so I, I agree with the others that, that money isn't necessarily the, the issue here. The, the resources are there, but how are we managing it? You know, what's the leadership behind and what are the ultimate objectives? I'm not sure if the criteria has been very, very clearly spelled out. I, that would, that's been one of the other criticisms. Is mm -hmm. that, what is the criteria? What are the matrix that we're, that we're measuring? And, that, and that's not clear out there. That's a good point. Dave, substance abuse, alcohol play a large role in this too. Uh, we recently hosted uh, a roundtable discussion on the impact of alcohol in our state. What role, I gotta ask here, what role does, do primary care docs play here? Meaning 
In terms of understanding someone's substance abuse problems as a, as a mental health issue that needs attention from a specialist, it, we hear from people all the time that that's the, the, the break, the, the leap that has to be made. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that you hear over and over and over again is, is that substance abuse cannot be separated from overall health care. And so one could make the argument or I'll make the argument, maybe we need to concentrate on simply increasing health care at all levels, increasing access. Although, you know, we've done a pretty good job. We, we went ahead and voted for Medicaid to expand it. But, you know, possibly we simply need to, you know, make overall health care better and, you know, improve the idea of, you know, can we get substance abuse uh, to be, uh, I think it plays a huge role in it, you know, if we can do that, maybe that's one way to sort of attack the problem, maybe fund the healthcare part of it more than we fund specifically those areas. I don't know. I'm not an expert on it, but that would be at least something to try. Mm, good point there. Uh, Julianne, one of the potential solutions uh, the state has pointed to is the expansion of the new 988 crisis hotline, as we all know, or should know, September is uh, Suicide Awareness Month, and the state has been promoting this since through this month, of course. Now, will that hotline have the positive impact the state is hoping for? That's a that's a hard thing to sort of break to the public statewide that we have a new you know phone number. You're going to spend a lot of money to do those kind of things, but is that is this a good idea? Well, I think people are most familiar with it because it caused us to all have to start dialing the area code when we right. call anyone else um, in, in the 505. That's probably the biggest difference that made people aware of it. But I don't think that type of thing is a silver bullet, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to your point about, you know, could primary care providers help with this? Um, you know, I think that the idea that most people who are struggling with substance abuse and other behavioral health issues that they have access to primary care, that's not really true. Um, and so we, we really don't have that baseline and we don't have systems that are addressing the root causes and again, giving people support sort of before things get to a crisis level. I think the other thing that you see people doing, the, the governments are always talking about, let's establish this crisis center. Mm -hmm. Let's have the one-stop shop for every behavioral health need ever. And we've seen that A, those things don't get built. When they do get built, B, they don't really work. Um, you know, they when the, the Santa Fe County facility that was just built and the Bernalillo facility that's supposed to go in in 2024, mm -hmm. they both have less than 30 beds each. Wow. That doesn't seem like a big enough dent given the problem. Yeah, that's it. Uh, two key points there. That's not going to put much of a dent. Uh, Ed, interestingly, an attorney with the group Disability Rights New Mexico, uh, this is an interesting point here, uh, says part of the problem, we, we're not proactive enough before there is a crisis, meaning the state is underusing Medicaid-mandated early periodic testing screening, for example, as well as diagnosing and treating children under 21. How important is, is it to get our kids, get to our kids early on this issue, and do we have to set up a framework to do this? You know, Gene, that's that's incredibly important. You know, the three you know um, approaches to to dealing with what can be a potentially serious problem is prevention, intervention, and treatment. And prevention is the most critical piece of this. Mm -hmm. And if we're not focusing our energies, if we're focusing too much energy on the back end, we've already failed at the at the front end. The, the focus needs to be. And granted, we need the appropriate resources in intervention and treatment, but prevention has to be at the forefront of all we do. And as we look at how our money is being spent, we need to spend to put a premium on our prevention mm -hmm. measures. How, what are we doing? What sort of outreach? Because sometimes mental health illness sneaks up on families, sneaks up on individuals before Good we point. see it. So what type of outreach are there? So when this happens, that those that are affected by it know how to access those resources. And so prevention, getting the word out in order to ensure that as these issues arise on the front end, that, that they're easily available, attainable, and accessible. And so again, pre prevention is key. There must be framework. I'm sure that those organizations that are, are looking at our approach to the mental health issues in this state are looking at prevention, although I haven't seen a lot of, a lot of research um, right. as, right. as far as how much work that they've, they've put into it. I'm sure that it's out there. Uh, I'd like to see more of it. Prevention's a tough one. It's a tough one. It's a buzz phrase, buzz word, but it's awfully hard.
Thanks again to Gene and our line panelists. The group took up one final topic this past week. It was new police recruitment funding and the larger issues contributing to low staffing rates at law enforcement agencies around the state. That's online right now on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube page. Our final segment on the podcast today focuses on those new COVID-19 boosters. Gene caught up with Dr. Laura Parahone, the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health. In their discussion, they talk about who's eligible and what parents and seniors should know about these new vaccines. They also touch on what we should expect as flu season approaches and monkeypox's limited impact in our state to this point. Here's Gene. Dr. Patahon, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate your time today. Of course. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to Absolutely. the program. It's our pleasure. Let's start right off the top with, vac with uh, new vaccines. That's probably the most well-known situation we've got going right now. Uh, you folks have a release out actually just a few days ago from the DOH site about things are ready to go and appointments are able to be made. What is this vaccine for? And first, and we'll get into who should get it and what we should think about. Sure. No, thanks so much. Well, I mean, what's really exciting right now is that for the first time, we actually have a booster, COVID booster shot that targets the actual variants, the BA4 and the BA5 that are circulating right now. Uh, most of the variants that are circulating for COVID are the BA4 and 5. So this vaccine is targeted to the both the original COVID and um, the BA4 and BA5. Um, so this, this, uh, the, the actually this lab data that that's been shown has actually shown that this vaccine will probably perform much better against these new strains and potentially other strains that are coming up. And it'll do that without sacrificing the original strain of COVID. So, um, you know, if you're gonna want to protect yourself from COVID this, uh, you know, this fall and winter, it's a really good idea to go out and get your booster shot as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, do you want me to talk about who's eligible? Is that mm -hmm. also? Awesome, okay. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I just, um, the, the other thing is, is that, um, you know, go ahead and get your flu vaccine. If I'm sorry, oh, you can go ahead and get your flu vaccine at the same time as well as the COVID. It's been proven, we've done it last year as well, that you can get both. Um, you're eligible for a COVID booster vaccine, and we're calling it the Omicron um, booster just because it's easier to remember. Uh, if you're over 12 years old, if you've completed your primary series, and that means either two of Pfizer, two of Moderna, one of Johnson & Johnson, if you've gotten those, you know, then you're eligible for this new Omicron booster. Um, and you do have to wait two months before you got your first set of shots, but I think most people have gotten their first set of shots quite a while ago. So it's um, time now to get your um, next booster. And we're really trying to make it easy for people to get it and make it easy for people to kind of remember, you know, so I know a lot of people have gone like, well, I got my first booster. I also got a second booster. Like we're, it's kind of like tabula rasa now, like clean slate. Let's clean slate it. you got your first primary series and now go get your booster. So it's kind of becomes like a rhythm, like the flu shot every year, go get another flu shot, you know? And so every year get your updated boost, you know, Omicron booster or whatever the new variant updated booster that will protect you against COVID for the coming months. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You say that. I, I think I saw Dr. Scrace, um, uh, my fault again, Dr. Fauci, not Dr. Grace. Is, is uh, Dr. He's Fauci. like a Dr. Fauci. He's our right. Dr. Fauci of New Mexico. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> I, 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 I was interesting to see him say the same thing, that we should get used to the idea of getting a booster every season, much like the flu. I, I, you know, are you seeing that people are able to internalize that yet? I mean, for a lot of folks out there, there's a little bit of vaccine fatigue, as you know, but the, uh, that idea, we should all get comfortable with that now, shouldn't we? I, you know, I really think so. I think, you know, COVID is probably here to stay, kind of like the flu. Um, and then I think once we get into a cadence, you know, we're in a much different spot now than we were before. We have so many tools to protect ourselves from COVID. So that's why, you know, if you are eligible for the booster, it's great to use that tool because it's one of the best tools to protect ourselves from hospitalization, deaths, and even long COVID. 
um, you know, the vaccine has proven to be uh, very effective for that. I know a lot of people are like, oh man, I got COVID and I was like fully boosted and vaccinated, but you probably got a much less severe version of COVID because you were vaccinated, you know? So these are kind of like, we know this is working. We have data that shows when you get vaccinated, you're much less likely to get really sick, really, you know, like hot, you know, much less likely to get hospitalized or die. So right. uh, for seniors, uh, should they be particularly um, noting this uh, new vaccine, is there some some benefit for seniors particularly? Yeah, you know, we really um, we've really seen during the whole COVID back pandemic, certain groups are much more likely to get sick or much likely to you know to get you know uh, hospitalized or die, and those are anyone older than 50. And every year over 50, the more likely you are to get sicker or, you know, hospitalized. So yes, we are really recommending, you know, uh, seniors to get this vaccine. It will help protect them over the fall and winter. You know, when you do get more illnesses, you know, as people are clumped together more. And then, um, yeah, and then anyone who's at high risk for COVID, um, for severe COVID. So that would be people who have like diabetes or asthma or anything that puts them at high risk, immune compromise, that these are all really important things to remember right now. Yes, please get your booster if you're a senior or you're at high risk for severe COVID. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum for children. Yeah. Uh, back in June, the department uh, issued a, a, a release, actually it doesn't seem that long ago, but middle of summer, it just sort of got lost. <laughs> Uh, new guidelines for young children. Where are we at now? How young can a youngster get a booster? And what are the benefits for parents to, to do so? Yeah, so, well, definitely little kids should definitely get their booster shots. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh man, you know, kids don't get as sick as adults, which is true. Like the people who are, the majority of people who are getting very, very sick or hospitalized or dying are older people but your kid can still get COVID, you know, the, it, it can be very mild for, for children, but for some, the infection can lead to hospitalizations and long-term side effects, um, diabetes and heart conditions like myocarditis. Um, so I, I really think that, you know, if we have something that can protect our kids from getting really sick, I mean, there have been some kids who have died from COVID, then, you know, why not protect our kids from, from getting really sick? Um, also, like, if you're sick, then you don't get to go to school either, you know, and we've seen the effects of the pandemic on kids when they don't go to school. Um, side effects after the vaccine are really mild and temp temporary and, you know, extreme, you know, extreme reactions are very rare. Uh, for, for us, you know, kids as young as six months old can get, um, can get the vaccine. So, and it's a lower dose. It's been proven to be really safe and effective uh, for children as well. And actually, the reason why it took longer for kids to get um, back, you know, into the vaccine set was because they really did rigorous, rigorous trials to make sure that the kids were safe from, you know, when they got COVID. Um, and so, yeah, so kids as young as six months can get their can get their um, their COVID vaccine. Is it a single dose scheme or to take more doses? How, what, how does it work for children? For the children, it's also like the adults, it's the two dose vaccine and, uh, and but it's a lower dose. So mm -hmm. it's, it's developed for little kids. I see, gotcha. Let's talk about mask use, um, talk about fatigue. Uh, <laughs> you know, out there we get a lot of feedback yes. that, you know, it, it, it's a difficulty for some people, but I, I gotta say anecdotally, doctor, as I've been out and about the last couple of weeks, I'm actually seeing some increased mask use in some places. Oh, it's very interesting. interesting. I don't think it means anything statewide, it's just my life, but it's very noticeable. And I, you know, my sense is some folks just absolutely understand that there's no pick and choose when it comes to mask use. If you're out in the public, you're susceptible. Yeah. Uh, where should we be about mask use these days and from your view and, and how do we keep ourselves safe? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, what the CD did, CDC did is they most recently kind of also updated their guidelines, given that we are in a different place now in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we 
uh, you know, we know that COVID's still circulating, and we do know that people are still dying of COVID. Um, you know, especially those who are immune compromised and older. But we do have such high levels of vaccine. We have effective treatments and prevention tools. We have a, a greatly reduced risk of um, medically significant illnesses um, from, you know, uh, hospitalized and deaths for most people who have been vaccinated. So we are in a different place. So that's why I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, I don't need to wear my mask anymore. And what we're recommending is, is that, you know, you should know your risk because um, it's important to see, okay, if I'm older and I'm immune compromised, I'm probably more likely to get sick and, uh, you know, get sick and, and die from COVID, right? So maybe that's a person who needs to make sure they wear a mask when they're outside and make sure like, hey, I'm gonna visit, when I go visit my mom and dad, they're elderly, they're immune compromised, right? I definitely wear my mask around my mom and dad when I go visit them and I test myself, you know? So know your risk, kind of know who's most at risk for COVID um, and protect yourself and others. You know, just be thoughtful about it. If you're in a huge group, like, um, like going to a concert and there's like tons of people around you, you know, maybe you want to wear a mask because you just are in such close proximity to a lot of people indoors, you know? So these are all things that are on the CDC website that kind of give you some guidelines. Um, so I think the other thing is, is that about wearing a mask is just where, when you do wear a mask and wear the one that you're most comfortable with and know that yes, N95 is the most, you know, uh, the most protective. Maybe it's not necessary if you're going outside with your grandma, you know, but if you're going indoors with your elderly immune compromised grandma, maybe you do want to, you do want to wear a mask to protect yourself and your grandma. So does that make sense? Like it's kind yes, of like uh, knowing your risk and uh, about wearing a mask. And we also have the COVID community levels that you can just go to covid.gov and then it, you type in your zip code and it tells you if you're like high, medium or low level risk. And so if you're at high risk, then um, yeah, if you're, you know, your community is at high risk of transmission right now, yeah, consider wearing a mask when you're indoors, you know, but if you're green, then, you know, you're probably good. Mm -hmm. How about traveling? Any advice for traveling? Um, it's interesting I asked this question today because yesterday a friend of mine headed out to the East Coast to see her sister and she texted me and said, no one has a mask here. She was very upset about it. Uh, no one was wearing a mask on the plane. She's an ex-nurse and so she's wearing an N95. So she's feeling like the public just being a little too lax with traveling. I, you know, and this counts for both bringing things home, meaning returning to New Mexico as, as, as is going somewhere else. Any advice for travelers out there when it comes to mask use? Um, once again, like know your risk and yeah. then take those risks based on, you know, wearing a mask. I have like asthma and I have hypertension, you know, I, I'm older. So like I wear a mask on the plane because I don't want to get really sick and I don't want to get, you know, I mean, I, I'm at higher risk. So I think that's, those are the things people need to take into account. There is no longer a mask requirement on the planes. But I think if you are worried and you once again know your risk, then you want to protect yourself accordingly. You know, you're going to once again visit your grandma. Maybe you don't want to get COVID on the plane and give it to grandma, you know? Right. Give a good point there. Excellent. Oh, yeah. tie that down. Brilliant. Um, let's talk about testing. You know, it's interesting to think about. Um, I, I see on Facebook a lot of folks showing pictures of positive or negative signs for their testing kits. Where can one get a testing kit? You know, what should we know about it? Are they still necessary these days? I know it's a difficulty for some employers. You know, you got employees kind of testing themselves going on this information, which is not exactly from a doc. But are you comfortable with the accuracy of the testing kits that are out there? And, and how do we get a hold of them? And, and how should we approach testing kits? Sure. Well, um, on our website, at the DOH website, you can still get testing kits from us um, if you're unable to get them because, um, you know, you have difficulties. You can also buy them at most pharmacies yeah. for about 20 bucks. You can get two. And then um, we also, you know, and we made sure that at least on our website, you can still get free testing kits. Uh, I, you can get up to, um, uh, let's see, I think we can send you about 
uh, eight kits. Um, oh, sorry, like you know, four test kits, which is like eight tests in that in that kit. Um, when you go to our website, uh, it used to be that the government had free test kits, but they've kind of pulled back on that. Your insurance company can pay for test kits as well. So that's important. And testing is still, oh, thank you. Um, Jody just put it in the in the chat box, findthetestinmexico.org. Um, you can also get tested, you know, um, at your local pharmacy or at your, you know, at different provider locations. But it's it's really important to know why you need to get tested, right? So you want to be tested if you have any symptoms at all of COVID. Uh, it's really important because you don't want to go around giving people COVID if you have COVID, or if you've been exposed to someone with COVID, you wanna test um, five days after you've been exposed or sooner if you have, uh, have uh, symptoms. And then we should remember that if we do test positive, you know, you wanna stay home when you're sick or stay, you know, or test positive, and you wanna seek treatment if you have symptoms, because if you are at higher risk for severe COVID, then you can um, get a treatment at findatreatment.org as well, or with your provider. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, or your local pharmacy, you'll they'll make sure you have a positive test and then they'll treat you and that will prevent your risk of hospitalization and death if you are a person, you know, who is at risk for severe COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then just remember that when you do get COVID, you do need to stay home for five days, <laughs> and uh, and then afterwards wear a mask around others. So just mm -hmm. uh, little tips that I know sometimes we forget because so many things have happened <laughs> in our world. That's right. Good point there. We're talking with Dr. Laura Patajon from the New Mexico Department of Health. We're catching up on COVID, but let's catch up on monkeypox, if I can. Um, it's here in New Mexico, just like it's everywhere. Um, how worried should folks be about monkeypox? And then secondarily, we do need to back up and explain what exactly is monkeypox, of course, uh, if you can take those two things on as well. Of course. Okay. Yes. We want to make sure we cover every single public health issue, and that's important. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So right now we have 27 cases in New Mexico. So we're not like other states that actually have a lot more monkeypox. Um, nationally, there's tw over 21,000 cases of monkeypox. Wow. Um, monkeypox is really, um, really used to be a pretty rare disease. Um, it's a, it's, it started out um, in a, a endemic, meaning that it's like uh, been there in Africa initially, mm -hmm. but then started spreading uh, to, to many other countries. And so it's, it's like I said, normally a rare disease. It's a, it's a, it's a situation where. Um, the outbreak actually is basically mostly what you see is um, you get uh, when you when you get monkeypox you get kind of like feverish type of kind of flu like symptoms and then afterwards you get a rash and that rash is what is what causes the spread of COVID so it's mostly spread through direct contact with the rash or sores of someone who has a virus. Um, most of it has been spread through sexual transmission, um, but you can also get it if you like come into contact with someone and, and like really um, rub up against the actual sores. That's what's infectious. So really a lot of people are like, oh my God, like I shouldn't touch doorknobs or I shouldn't touch, you know, anybody. So um, really it's it's not like COVID where you could get it through the air, you know, um, like easily through the air. It's mostly spread through skin to skin contact. Um, we do recommend uh, prioritizing doses for people who are at high risk of COVID. And uh, currently, the people who are at higher risk are people who actually had a known exposure to monkeypox in the last 14 days. And it's time sensitive. So if you do have any rash, you know, you can call our hotline, you can go to your providers, they can test you for monkeypox if mm. you um, know you've been in contact with someone. And we've also been vaccinating people who are at high risk right now. Uh, the monkeypox has been spreading mostly in uh, one population, which is men who have sex with men, but that doesn't mean that's the only population just happen to get in that population. Mm -hmm. And so um, we really wanna be respectful that we don't want to you know, stigmatize any one group. We just wanna make sure people know their risk and say, hey, if you're at high risk, if you've had um, more than one 
um, uh, part sexual partner, you could be at high risk of the exposure. So you can um, call through our call center and you can also go to our website and register for a vaccine online. But really anybody with multiple sexual partners or who has been exposed to someone with co uh, monkeypox can, can actually get the monkeypox. You know, let me, um, I'm gonna read the phone number here. Um, I appreciate the fact that on the DOH website, the, uh, you know, you can have a confidential consultation. That's important, I think, yes. for all the reasons yes. you just mentioned a second ago. And that's at 1-855-600-3453. Once again, 1-855-600-3453. That's the DOH call center for that confidential consultation on monkeypox. Um, and you know, I, I, don't, I just wanna actually say something too, cause I do have college age kids, you know, and just, you know, maybe in college, maybe you do have sometimes, you know, more chance to spread it in college also because you're, um, you're uh, at close proximity too. So we know we've been reaching out to some of our college partners as well to let them know too that we are, uh, that if you feel like you're at risk for monkeypox, like um, you can go get the vaccine as well. Mm -hmm. and, you know, follow safe sex practices. <laughs> yep, good point there. Doctor, I have one last question. Obviously, we are coming up on flu season. Uh, this kind of relates to masks and everything else. But it's been interesting to note, again, anecdotally, how folks are not missing the flu because back when we all had masks on for a couple of falls in a row and really beat it down. But now we're not. How concerned should we be about flu and can mask continued mask use really sort of help out with this as well? Uh, definitely continued mask use helps with any kind of illness that's transmitted through rest, you know, through the air, through respiratory droplets. And so I would definitely say, yeah, if you were worried about not getting flu, you can also continue to wear your mask, but also to get your flu shot and just, you can get it at the same time as your COVID shot. And it's just like a cadence. So mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. that's your other option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To finish up with, I should note, maybe I should have noted up top, I want to congratulate you on your work when you were medical director for the city of Albuquerque's COVID-19 response <laughs> for people experiencing homelessness. That's yes. a very interesting situation. Is there, in a, just a minute or so, could you sum up what you saw, observed, um, any suggestions about this particular population, meaning the homeless population, when it comes to COVID? And I have to say, congratulations are due to you in the entire city, I'm sure you saw in that recent report about the level of satisfaction that the city just commissioned that report. A very high number of Albuquerqueans were very satisfied about the COVID-19 response and you were part of that. So congratulations. Oh, thank there. you. Absolutely. Well, what should we know about the homeless when it comes to, when it comes to COVID and, and how it's being handled in that population? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I was very privileged to be part of a really great team at the city of Albuquerque and the Department of Health that worked together with many other partners, our hospital systems, with a lot of other nonprofits, um, our Indian Health Service, just a lot of people came together to help people experiencing homelessness. Because as you remember at the beginning, do you remember like shelter in place, you know, you know, stay quarantined, all this stuff. What was someone who is experiencing homeless supposed, homelessness supposed to do in that situation? So yeah, so working with our partners, we really uh, work together to, to define safe spaces for people experiencing homelessness, uh, developed a series of medical shelter hotels. Uh, they're just a sheltering hotel, not, not like we were doing all this medical work, but just like they were sheltering there. Um, also, we, we also shelter a lot of um, people from um, uh, our American Indian tribes, Pueblos and nations who worked with us. So I think what, what it, I think what it showed for um, people experiencing homelessness or anybody who you know was living in a, a large group home setting was that when you could take people um, who had COVID and gave them a safe space to isolate while they recovered from COVID, that that actually helped curb the spread. Mm -hmm. And we were able to really reduce the number of outbreaks in the shelters because we were then able to get testing. Um, at that time, the Department of Health worked us up really closely to do that. So um, yeah, so that's uh, that's what's happening. Congratulations on that, absolutely. It's, we need care and attention for that population, as you know, so it's, it's just part of the deal here. 
Dr. Laura Padajon, she is the Deputy Cabinet Secretary for the Department of Health here in for the state of New Mexico. I can't thank you enough for catching our viewers up on COVID, monkeypox, flu, masks, <laughs> child vaccines, everything else. This is really very important. We really wanted to reach out and I can't thank you folks enough for the quick turnaround as well. Um, it's This kind of information is important. We just wanted to get timely with it and we felt like we we're just a couple of weeks behind. So thank you so much for your time today. Okay. That's for sure. Um, do we, should we give it's NM, uh, the websites and everything for folks to track what they need to, to have? Go ahead and let folks know where they can find all this information. Sure, so um, vaccinenm.org if you wanna go get your booster vaccine. That's that's available. Um, if you think you're at risk for monkeypox and you're interested in the vaccine, you can call the New Mexico Department of Health, 1-855-600-3453. Or also that's the same line if you have questions about the booster or, or, or the COVID vaccine in general. Um, if you wanna register online for monkeypox, it's monkeypoxnm.org as well. And um, yeah, and then uh, if you want to find a test, find a, find a test, nm.org. So yeah, a lot of websites, but we're trying to make it easier for people to get access. And, you know, we just really appreciate you to get the word out and um, all the people of New Mexico who work so hard, you know, to, to keep our community safe. Absolutely. Thank you for all you're doing in the whole department. Believe me, it just, it's very much appreciated from all of us here at New Mexico PBS. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the podcast this week, including Dr. Laura Parahon and our line opinion panelists. Please weigh in on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook pages if you have thoughts on any of those topics. And as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like it, check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost it on our YouTube channel so you can watch it there too. We also post individual clips up on our Facebook page, check out our Instagram page. Also, there's a lot of interactive stuff there that we don't post anywhere else. So keep an eye on those social media pages for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our show on Friday nights. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, September 19th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.